Welcome to the podcast, Working. I'm your host, Dan Doriani. The goal of this podcast is to fire the imagination of Christians who long to practice their faith at work. We do this primarily by interviewing people who have a story to tell about the way they practice their convictions as they work. Our guests may be famous or unknown, highly successful or quietly faithful. We meet doctors, athletes, broadcasters, librarians, presidents, intellectuals, politicians, journalists, leaders of startups, and more. Today's guest is Phil Riken, the president of Wheaton College and the author of 50 books. He and I have been working on a Bible commentary series for almost 20 years. Phil Riken, it's a delight to have you uh, on this broadcast, this podcast. Uh, we've been working together on a project for almost 20 years by now, and it's been a pleasure to uh, to do that series. It's a Reformed Expository series, and that kind of gave us excuses to work together. We're also in the uh, Council of the Gospel Coalition as well. But uh, you're, a, you're a noted leader, and you're a pastor, and we don't do many pastors on this podcast, but you're a very special kind of pastor. You're one that does uh, leadership work that's very important. You head a very notable, uh, many would say, I'll say, the most well-known, the best uh, Christian college in the country. Uh, are you willing to tolerate that, that statement? So, yeah, I, that's not something I go around saying, but it is great to talk to you. Dan, and even though we've been working on this project for like 20 years, we don't get that much hangout time. So it's great to have a meaningful conversation with you about faith and work. Well, thank you. So let me uh, start. A lot of the questions people have about faith and work touches finding their calling. And uh, yours came to you, we might say, pretty honestly, your calling is a lot like your father's. He's an author, you're an author. He's a professor, you've got a PhD. But you know, the apple isn't right under the tree either. Uh, you're not doing exactly what your father did. Uh, certainly, you, you have his ability as a writer and as a thinker. But how did you find your way to become a college president? It's not an easy job. How'd you get there? Yeah, well, first of all, fundamental to my calling is my calling to be a, a minister of the gospel. And interestingly, um, both of my grandfathers were elders in, in one case, Christian Reformed Church, in another case, what eventually was a Presbyterian Church in America Church. And they both, on, at some point or other, and this is also true of my father, had an opportunity to preach. And in every case, they realized right away, this is not what I'm called to do. I, I, I can communicate, I, I love the Lord, but that's not what I'm called to do. But when I was a small boy, um, I had a very strong sense, and this would have been reinforced at home, at school, in other places, that I needed to use my gifts to serve the Lord. And one of my thoughts, even, you know, probably from sort of second or third grade on, was maybe God is calling me to be a minister. So that, that sense of calling became a lot stronger in high school and then really solidified early on in college. So that's, for me, that's my lifelong call, calling. One, one day I'll, uh, I will set aside or be removed from my calling as president of Wheaton College. And Lord willing, I will continue to do gospel ministry, maybe in a local church or someplace like that. That's lifelong for me. But I was prayerfully open to the possibility that God was calling us to, uh, to Wheaton College. And I, I could talk a little bit more about the specifics of that. But I, I have a, a sense you stay in the place where God puts you until he pulls right. you out of that place to another place. Yeah, so that's uh, one of the sayings uh, we use in this podcast is stay unless because. 
So stay where you are unless God calls you a different place because you can flourish wherever you are and you have to trust God's providence in putting you that place. And of course, you know that's the theme of 1 Corinthians 7. You know, if you're single, stay single unless, you know, you're burning, get married. And, uh, you know, the amazing statement, if you were called as a slave, stay. You can serve. Everybody's a slave to somebody. And uh, you can stay, even serving Christ in an enslaved condition, unless you can gain your freedom, <laughs> because, because you can serve God more uh, when you have a new, uh, a new level of freedom and opportunity. I, I love the way Francis Schaeffer talks about this. I think this is in his book, No Little People, No Little Places. He talks about the difference between intrusion and extrusion. Intrusion is when you put yourself forward and stick yourself into a place where God hasn't actually called you. Extrusion is when God grabs hold of you, pulls you out, and puts you into a new place. And uh, not surprisingly, he's against intrusion, but very in favor of prayerful extrusion. Right, right. So we'll get back to you in a second, but I love that intrusion, extrusion. I think that's a great a uh, little mental rubric that we can use. And it applies to a lot of things, like, for example, marriage, right? When a marriage is going badly, you don't say, I've got to get out of here. Uh, this is the person God chose for me. We, we took our vows. We knew what we were doing. And so we stay here uh, because God put us here. We don't, we don't extrude ourselves. And a God extrudes us by death, of course. And, what, you know, sometime, I'm not going to get into the issue of, of divorce, but that's a great principle that applies. throughout. You know, life. here's another place it applies, I think, is to church membership and involvement in the church. There is a time when God does call you to leave one church and go to another. But there's also a lot to be said for staying rooted, hanging in yes. there, persevering. And uh, that's a place of God's blessing and calling for you. Yeah. And we took vows. And that's uh, that's a serious matter, which we've lost sight of today. So let me uh, let's talk about your um, your extrusion intrusion in a minute but let me i'm gonna ask you to to not boast but to talk about god's work in your life uh what would you say is your most important skill set and if i can even say it this way uh what is your highest and rarest gift the the point where your you know a rare gift you have intersects with an important or strategic gift so in other words uh, my my rarest gift is that i can read any book while juggling but it's not a high gift. It's not very strategic. It's a party trick. It lasts, you know, it's significant for about 20 seconds. And then I read four books that people put in front of me and then it's over. So um, that is a rare gift, but not a high gift. So I'm asking you to label where you have a gift that's kind of rare and strategic for God's kingdom and how you started using it. And then we'll talk about how you're using it now. I mean, by starting, I mean, when you were a pastor Yep. after you got your PhD. Yeah. So such a great question, by the way, that might be a high gift. If you were called to be a court jester, then maybe it would be a high gift, but um, court jesters, court jesters, you know, tended to get a little too candid and then off with their heads. So no, thank you. High risk. So high risk. So such an interesting question here. Here's one. Um, Deanne, and that is one thing that I I think I'm gifted at is I can understand things at a very deep level, read all kinds of different texts. That's been a a gift that's really been honed. But I can communicate in a way that actually connects at a couple of different levels. So, um, so, you know, some people might be surprised. I can really connect with children um, in a teaching uh, place. I can definitely connect with college students. I... So um, that's an ability to sort of translate ideas 
translate vision perhaps and connect it at multiple levels. So that, that's, that's one skill. I'll tell you another skill um, that is pretty, you know, I'm, I'm high end on it. I don't know if it's particularly rare, but I have um, just a very high capacity for grasping information, processing things, uh, just a lot of um, mental capacity for that. And that's that's a gift that God's used in a lot of different ways, too. Yeah, that's true. And uh, can I call you, can I give you the honorary title of uh, a Disney-esque communicator? Because, you know, the best or Pixar movies entertain a 7-year-old and they entertain a 47-year-old. And, they're, you know, these, these in-jokes that just delight the adults, right? And uh, the kid doesn't know he's, what he's missing, or she's missing. And so that's great. And I, I agree with you. I've read your work, and I think that's a good assessment of your skills. So you've used those skills as a pastor, obviously, of a historic, large, influential church in Philadelphia for a number of years. And then you gave that up in order to take on a daunting, demanding often thankless job. So let's just tell me a little bit about why you love being a pastor for a while, and then we'll talk about your transition. Yeah. Just a few words about the ministry. Oh, I mean, I love being a pastor. So uh, I, I love being a pastor in an urban context. We were in downtown Philadelphia, just the complexity of urban issues, issues of poverty, issues of justice, issues of politics, issues of education, just everything's happening in in the city. So much to, to work through and a tremendous variety of different people, people from all over the world, all different walks of life, all different social and economic backgrounds, all in one city and also in many ways in one congregation. Um, I really love being in a multi-generational church. So um, love connecting with older saints, love connecting, love the really special relationship that a pastor can have with young children in a congregation. So, um, and did you, you love know, baptisms? Did so, you love baptisms? I love baptisms. So I, I love just even the little details. So infant baptism, you know, we're Presbyterian, right. just, just knowing how to, to graze the cheek of a baby <laughs> or give a little bit of a knuckle to stop a child and, that's about uh, to yeah. cry and uh, warm water and yes. keep your hand on oh. their head. If, so they don't cry. Don't let the water run down their face. Yes. Yeah. No, warm water is a key to this whole thing. So the deacons in my church knew, like, I like to see a little, a little bit of steam rising yeah, from right, the baptismal, right. font, baptismal font. So, yeah. So no, but, um, and then the other thing is just, uh, I love being in God's word day in, day out, week in, week out for the purpose of teaching it to other people. And, so I, I just love the rhythms of pastoral life uh, in a preaching context. And I, I was blessed, you know, the whole time I was in pastoral ministry, I was preaching, teaching weekly. Yeah, that's, that's right. And that was, that's what makes it fun, of course, if you love the Word and teaching the Word. Um, the, the best, you know, every job you have to take out the garbage, right? There's just a nasty part. But the idea of getting paid to study the Bible, that's pretty exciting. That's, well, yeah, no, and I think privilege. some of the wonder and joy of that, particularly when I first started, I was done with all my education, just had opportunity, and and I had a, I had a very privileged situation because I had fully 20 hours a week to prepare for one sermon, so I could do a lot of reading, preparation, like really, like try to learn how to do this. Not everybody has that luxury. It was a huge blessing, such a joy. Well, that, that, you know, 
I'm not trying to talk about myself, but at Central Pres, that was, you know, basically the same story because it's a large church and they expect the sermon. And then, of course, it pays off throughout the rest of your ministry. You know, when you're talking to somebody, it may be a point you had no time to put in your sermon. It was a great point. It's on your mind and you share it with people in a small group so many times. All right, I'm going to ask you a quick question. If you had a talented newcomer with you on your staff at 10th Pres or, you know, somewhere else, um, and they, you know, you're going up the elevator, you're going up three stories. Dr. Riken, give me your one master tip. What would you say? Oh, my one master tip. You can, you can here, okay, and get a 1A, 1B if you I'll want. Give, I'll give you one. I don't know if it's a great one. So one thing that I do, um, I, I have to process a tremendous amount of information, lots of things to read, lots of papers across your desk, lots of emails. As much as possible, read through it once, Decide the next thing that you're going to do with it and either do it or write a little note at the top of it so that when you see it again, you don't have to read the whole thing. It's just right there. Boom. Here's the next thing to do with that. Yeah. That's the touch it once principle. Yeah. Touch it once and then make a little make a little note to make sure that actually happens. Here's let me give you another one. So because I think this one would help a lot of people in a lot of different jobs. So I had a good friend who for, for many years has been my insurance agent. And he likes to just really talk about just life issues and how you're thinking about the future. He gave me a great tip, and that is, if possible, take a half day or a full day sometime in the middle of the week to be your hold day, where you have few or, if possible, no appointments, maybe a morning where you don't have any appointments, sometime in the middle of the week so that you've got longer extended time to work on bigger projects or just catch up on other things. It's been a huge help to me uh, to have a whole day, hold half day as much as I can. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I'll just offer my, uh, my tip, and that is uh, very similar to yours. When I'm reading a book that's really good, I will write a brief summary of the main point at the top of each page. So then if I say, you know, I read this book four years ago. He made this fantastic point. It's somewhere a little bit past the midpoint. I can find it in 45 seconds or two minutes, maybe. So similar. I think it's a similar sort of point. Um, so you were there for a number of years. How many years? 15 years. That's a good, uh, that's a good tenure. And then uh, some things happened that made you think that as much as you love being a pastor, you were called to become a leader of a Christian college and a a large complex one with a grad school. So it's not, you know, a little bit more complicated than, um, than a, than a standard Christian liberal arts school and, uh, you know, pretty big plant and so on. What made you do it? Yeah. What, what skill set? what made you think God was calling you out of a job you loved and, and then I'm going I'm to let you comment as you will. If you forget, that's okay, because it's a big, complicated question. You'd give up some things. Um, what enabled you to do that? Yeah. Yeah. So, and what, so what new gifts flourished? Yeah. Yeah, so it's a, that's, a huge, that's a huge topic. I'll say, so I question. grew up in Wheaton, Illinois. My dad's been teaching here now for over 50 years. Uh, it's a school I attended to, uh, attended, and where I met my wife. I, all my life... Based, you know, from early, my early, early age, um, I've been in love with Wheaton College students. So um, that's kind of a lifelong love affair that I have. Um, 
many, you know, a variety of times people would come to me when we were in Philadelphia, hey, would you think about this? Would you pray about this? For me, the answer was no, I'm doing what I'm called to do. This was the one other place that I was open to considering and praying about. Uh, we knew that the college was coming up to a transition. I had seen the profile of the next president, and I took it home, talked it over with Lisa, and we just had to acknowledge, as you look at the profile, there are very, very few people that meet that profile. And if you do meet that profile, you know that you are one of those people. So we began at that point um, to pray more earnestly about something we had been open to for a while, which is that God would translate us to Wheaton College. Um, I did not apply for the position when it became open because of intrusion and extrusion. I said, Lord, I'm open to this. Um, you're going to have to make it clear that that's what you have for us. And I just sort of left it in the Lord's hands. Maybe four or five months into their search process, the co-chairs came and said, hey, would you, people have been suggesting you, are you open to considering this process? And we had been praying about it, and I was, I was ready for it. Um, you know, in terms of the gains and losses, so I, I love a college environment. I love the music, the arts, the sports, the science, the drama, the theater, the chapel worship. Just everything that happens. And it is super complex. I mean, Wheaton has a budget of over $100 million. We have nearly 1,000 employees. We've got 45,000 alumni. I mean, it's much more complex even than a very large church with all of its complexity. And I, I love that. Um, one of the biggest losses was ministry to children and young children. And the week in, week out rhythm of Bible teaching. One way or another, I'm teaching the Bible every week, do a lot of preaching on campus and off campus, but it's right. not quite the same as right. just that systematic week in, week out rhythm. Um, one of the big gains, particularly initially, was actually getting to worship as a family, the whole family, yeah. in a regular Sitting kind a of way. Yeah, Hold hands with your wife, right. It was super joyful um, yeah. to be able to to be able to do that. Um, and then just lots of other gains. But I think the biggest thing for me, Dan, is I, I love leadership. I love what's involved in leadership. I love the impact that you can have in other people's lives, working with the team, working through issues. Of course, there are a lot of really tough things in leadership and a lot of heartache and tears sometimes, a lot of, a lot of labor and toil. But, um, I, even just even in small contexts, if we're having fathers and sons, play football on a Sunday afternoon. I love organizing that, getting involved, <laughs> providing leadership, just love that aspect of leadership. And um, College Campus is just a great place for leadership to flourish in all of its different dimensions. Uh, so I'm, I'm gonna just say, I can't resist a sidebar for a second. I like your answer, but uh, you and I talked before we started this about, uh, briefly, we're, we both played tennis and you talked about your neighbors not liking people to play tennis on their courts on Sunday afternoon, uh, which of course implies that you, now you've said privately that you don't mind playing tennis on Sunday afternoon and you throw a football around. And I'll just say that is exactly my, my position. Here's my position on Sundays in sports. As long as winning and losing doesn't matter, it's good. Um, so I play tennis on Sunday afternoons with some of my friends but my, my criterion is very simple. If either one of us says we're tired, we want to get a drink, we just want to talk, if the score is 3-3 in the third set and somebody says, I'm tired, I'm done playing, let's talk. If, that, if it's that kind of a person, then I'll play with them. 
But if somebody says, no, we got to finish, we got to finish, then I won't play. Because the competition ruins it in terms of restful activity for me. And I'm not trying to impose that on others, but um, I believe that you have to, for it to be truly restful, you have to just be able to say, I can stop anytime. I don't have to win. I, I totally agree. And I, I would say that it has to have clearly the quality of play. Yes. In order to be recreational, that is recreational, yes. which is what the Sabbath should be. And I just had, this is interesting you mentioned this, because just in the last week, I had an insight. So I, I am willing to play sort of pick up football, fathers and sons. Right, right. For me, that's playful. And, you know, you, you, you're competitive for the fun of it, but you, you're laughing through the whole thing. Exactly. Similarly, I can do that with tennis. I had to I had to recognize it at an early, earlier stage in life. I cannot play basketball on, on the Sabbath. Sunday. Okay, yeah. Yes. On Lord's Day. But I think now I have reached a place of sufficient Ah. sanctification, of loving my neighbor, of uh, just bringing a quality of affection and play into a competitive context. I think I actually could play basketball with keeping score on Sunday now and do it in a Sabbath-keeping way. I have to tell you, it might be because you're a tiny bit older. Maybe it's possible that you're it more. Be, it's possible that you're more, you know, Christ-like and mature. But it's also possible that uh, that age brings. I've lost my edge. Yeah, <laughs> I'm ancient. Yes. <laughs> hey, I'm older than you are. Um, so that's I love uh, I love your answer, and it's certainly true that a leader ends up leading on uh, many occasions, not just the stated occasions. And of course, that's how you become a leader. Is you you kind of take charge of things and then people say oh oh uh you not only did you want to lead but you led well and you took care of let's stay with football you you helped the weakest player feel good about participating and the teams were even and you know somebody got hurt and we didn't say okay come on let's start playing again you know you you loved the people and that's what people recognize so uh let me just uh, go back to a question that's implicit here. Um, you have talents. Uh, to some extent, they're innate or genetic or God-given. You could say that, saying the same thing three ways. Um, how much is your um, success in the world, if I can say it that way, the result of hard work? Because there are a lot of people with, a, with great gifts. And I'm just going to intrude here. Um, You've written 50 books. That's a truckload of books. So you're not a stranger to work. So you've got God-given gifts. You mentioned a couple of them. How important is hard work in your opinion? I think it's hugely important. I think it is a necessary but not a sufficient condition for many, many forms of success. I was greatly blessed to be raised in the family I was raised in because uh, my my grandparents on my father's side were farmers. Mm-hmm. Nobody's harder working than farmers. They know how Absolutely to work. no one is. They know how to work. Uh, um, on my mother's side, uh, a school teacher and uh, an, elect- an electrical foreman in a factory context. I mean, those are all hugely hardworking callings. So that was really deeply ingrained in our family. My father has a tremendous capacity for, for hard work, although 
also, you know, knows how to keep boundaries, be attentive to his family. I, so I think I had a really good role model in my father and how he approached his work. Um, but I definitely have a very, very high capacity for hard work. I enjoy working. Uh, working to me is joyful. Uh, being productive is in a way restful and brings satisfaction. Um, so um, certain kinds of calling, I mean, ministry, most ministry abhors a vacuum. Yes. So there's as much work to do as, as you want there to be to do. Um, and um, college presidents are, I don't think too many people work harder than college presidents, just speaking on behalf of my colleagues. Yeah. Uh, many, many, many long hours. It's a hardworking yeah. job. And a lot of travel and, and working outside gift sets, things like fundraising. Some are good at it and some aren't. And you simply have to do it uh, because you depend on outside gifts. Right. Yeah. So um, it's interesting. You're praising your ancestors broadly, your forebears and your father in particular a couple of times. Uh, the previous person on this podcast was a broadcaster and a very successful one. And his father was also very successful, not as successful maybe as he is. And he could not stop praising his father. I mean, he just came back to the excellence of the love and the character and the hard work of his dad over and over. So I want to uh, commend you for praising, for honoring your father and your mother, but um, anything more you want to say about the example of parents and grandparents? Ooh, well, that's a huge, that's a huge topic as well. Some of the, so many of the things that I've already talked about. So for example, uh, using your gifts to serve the Lord and recognizing that those talents are, I mean, my, my grandmother on my father's side, that was just such a strong theme with her and just also um, just a sense of uh, affection and support. Um, I mean, I've enjoyed that from the day I was born. And so that that gives you just tremendous privileges and opportunities in life. Another thing I'll say just about my parents, um, my father, super hardworking, very good in the intellectual gifts. My mother, very good in the empathetic okay. gifts, um, the, the compassionate side. She's very strong in those. She's a counselor by training. Mm. Um, the equal of my father in terms of her raw intellectual gifts, yep. but wired very differently in terms of her intuitions for people. And I, there's, there's a sense in which I think I have some of the capacities of both of my parents. Yeah. Um, and I think people that know our family would probably see that as well. You know, one of the delights of life is to watch um, children pick up the best of their parents. Um, one of my daughters got married recently, uh, my last child to marry, and I had the privilege of meeting his parents. And I thought, oh, now I understand him because he's, you know, he's got this He's got the gifts without going to what those gifts are, you know, intellectual gifts and social gifts and interpersonal gifts and tenderness and intensity. It's, it's beautiful when God enables us to pick up from the people around us what's in the air um, and to learn our, as much as we possibly can from that. So, and unfortunately, uh, uh, we also pick up some of their worst traits. So that's one of know, the worst was, things about movie. being a parent. <laughs> there was a movie about that called Twins. Remember Arnold Schwarzenegger and Danny DeVito? Okay. The okay. same parents. I don't recommend the movie, but it's, yeah. you know. It, it's the good premise anyway. The premise, yes. I mean, it's not a bad movie, but it's not a, I don't, I'm not telling you to go out and get it off Netflix tomorrow. Um, but it, it has its amusing moments. Um, let me ask you this question. Uh, what do you get to do to change your corner of the world 
that might not be visible to somebody who looks at you and says, oh, college president, what do you get to do that's important and perhaps somewhat hidden? Oh, I, I might want to come back to that one later. That's a really interesting question. So um, one thing I'll say is there's an opportunity to influence and perhaps be a blessing to people that you encounter, not necessarily on campus, but off campus. So, for example, people in political office, um, you know, I probably know more people in Congress than sort of the average person does. I have opportunities to be in some of those offices, pray for those people. Um, so that would be, I think that would be one. Another, just another kind of perspective on things. You mentioned fundraising is a key part of, of the work that a, a campus leader does. And that is, I, I think it's maybe a quarter of what I do, something like that. We fundamentally think of fundraising if that's what you want to call it, as a form of ministry. That is, we are helping people use their gifts for the kingdom, and that is a way of serving them and blessing them. And in the course of those conversations, they are such important conversations because they are about what are your kingdom priorities, how are you using your kingdom resources, that that is a way to minister to the people um, that you're having those conversations with. So that's an inf- and particularly if they are people that have lots of gifts and including financial gifts, that's an influential form of ministry that doesn't just affect your institution. It actually serves the broader kingdom. Well, uh, right. And, you know, I'm, this is a broad audience uh, podcast, so I use the word fundraising because that's the term that's understood. But I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, what I found when I talk to people, uh, point one is that they, the, the most generous people often come to me. I don't ask them. They say, God's given me wealth, and I want to give it away well. Can you help me? These are some of my goals. Um, And I've come to see it. Nobody told me this, but I learned that one of the great burdens of people who are very adept in business is the intense desire to give of their wealth to be generous in the best possible way. And they know many ways in which, of course, that can go wrong. And... Uh, they, they're looking for people and for causes they trust. And so you're ministering to them when you help them give to the right cause, which might be Wheaton. But, it, it, you know, you might say, you know, uh, thank you, brother, sister. You know, we can certainly, those scholarship IDs you have are great. But as I listen to you, what I think you really want to give to is another cause more than my cause. Yeah, no, and that happens from time. Here's another example. Somebody may have some... Um, books or papers or things that yes. they want to give to your institution and you right. think about it you're like you know we're not the right fit for that right. but i know just the right place for that exactly. and help make that connection yeah so. a better library a better repository yeah. for things that's good uh very good so uh, we talked a lot about the sort of happy side of your work and i sent you this question so you're not you shouldn't be shocked when i ask you this um, but you know pastors and christians and general teachers sometimes they're really good at talking about the mercy of God, you know, for other people. Um, when have you needed the mercy of God? I'll, I'll help you. I'm going to go first, okay, just to give you a, a simple one. So my wife, uh, my wife fell, had a bad fall, some very uneven pavement, and she, oversimplifying, broke her hand pretty badly, right hand, couldn't use it for two months. And, you know, she's great in the kitchen, and I'm not. 
And so we had a, a two-day adjustment period in which the ways, my ways in the kitchen were not her ways. And uh, eventually I came to the conclusion that what I needed to do was say, honey, the best way to live happily is for you to go to another room when I'm washing the dishes or preparing things and call your friends and then you'll be happier. And then that worked out really well. And we're closer than ever. But, you know, there were a couple days where, um, you know, I had to repent of, you know, why are you not grateful for the way in which I am cooking and cleaning? I needed God's mercy as a husband. So that's a simple one. That's just recent in my life. But um, I want to be, you know, I want to be genuine. It's very easy to talk about grace in an abstract way. When have you needed God's grace and mercy? Well, first of all, your, uh, your illustration prompts another hot tip, and this is not work-related. This is family life-related. We have a rule in our household. Uh, you can tell me what you want me to do, or you can tell me how to do it, but, not but both. you can't tell me both. So you got to choose. So that, that's a really good, just, you, that one's a multi-use item there. So. That's multi-use. Yep. Yep. So, uh, I mean, so Dan, I mean, there's just so many different ways. So the first thing that I'll just say is I think, um, probably the place I've learned the most about my need for mercy is in the context of parenting. Yes. I think parenting is super humbling, yeah. uh, humbling because sometimes your kids make mistakes that you can't prevent. Sometimes they provoke you to anger or frustration in ways that then you have to repent to them of the way that you mm -hmm. responded. Yeah. I think particularly anybody that's in a, a ministry leadership role, uh, one of the first things you're going to need to learn how to say is I'm sorry. And you're going to, you're going to need to say that to your kids before, um, you know, you're involved in public ministry. One of the first things I said to my cabinet when I came to Wheaton is, uh, I just take it for granted. We're going to need to know how to say to one another, I'm sorry. I forgive you. Yep. Um, so sometimes that's when you've been short with people or you haven't um, thought the best of their motives. I mean, just, just lots, of, lots of things like that. Let me, let me, can I just and pause I, on that one for a second? Yeah. Um, yes, not thinking. just want to make sure people pick that up. You said it fast. Um, we find, you know, we, we exaggerate the brilliance of people's motives or the pure love of people's motives sometimes. And, and we exaggerate... Um, what might possibly be taken as malice. And one of the great principles, of course, is never ascribe to malice what can be ascribed to incompetence, right? So, so important to not ascribe evil motives to people. Life is so much easier when you don't assume that they did that on purpose to bother you. I, I feel so strongly about that point for two reasons. One is other people's motives are not on display for you. You right. can judge their actions and their words. Yep. But as soon as you start saying you know what their motives are, um, you're just in an area where you don't know what the... So, and then I'll just also say, um, a lot of times you're just better off ascribing the very best that you can. And I, I think Absolutely. I have a pretty tolerable ability to do that. A lot of situations where people are like frustrated with people's motives and then you want to say, but yeah, just recognize where they're coming from what they're trying to accomplish. I like to give people as much 
latitude as I possibly can, which doesn't mean that there aren't times when people just drive you over the edge. Right. Um, so, but that whole area of ascribing the best to people's motives, um, as I just think is principle. super, it is. Right. Yeah. It's not just how to get along with people. It's, I mean, Paul says that it's one of the traits of love is, you know, that we think the best of people. I'm paraphrasing a slight, slight bit. So yeah. I just wanted, I, I agree with you so strongly. I wanted to just give you, Let's have a moment to pause on not ascribing evil motives. I'm agreeing with you violently. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. All right. Uh, I don't even know where we were right now. I had to stop. In it. Did you want to finish something? Well, you were just talking about areas where oh, yeah, mercy. Um, I've needed God's else? mercy. Yeah. Let me just mention one other one. Yeah. And um, so just realizing that even the very best things that you do fall short. Yes. So I know this as a preacher. Um, have I ever felt like I really fully did justice to a passage, preached it in all its fullness, like everything that it really deserved or should right. be? No. <laughs> right. Uh, is there ever anything that happens, you know, in the work of Wheaton College? There are things you feel good about. Uh, and I'll, I can give you an example in a minute if you want one. But um, I just realized there are things that you didn't get done that you wanted to get done, ideas you couldn't follow through on, things that fell short of what you really thought the excellence that they deserved. You have to live with a gap between what is perfect or ideal and life as it actually is. And I think that's one of the places where God, uh, in his mercy, accepts our work even with its limitations. And even maybe, so there's this, maybe even sins. I mean, yes, we, there might have been a little bit of laziness at some point or some some of the shortfall is culpable. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, but I, I love what the Westminster Larger Catechism says about this. It talks about the work of Jesus Christ interceding on our behalf. And it says because of Jesus, not only our persons, but also our works yes. are acceptable to God. Yep. And I love that because I know my work isn't fully acceptable to God. So part of the answer to your question for me, where do you need God's mercy? Everything I have ever done yeah. in leadership or ministry. So let me underscore that. Um, we talked to, both of us talked to pastors about their work from time to time uh, because we know them. And of course, we're also safe because we were pastors, but we're not anymore, right? So um, many a pastor thinks that what they need to do is preach a perfect sermon on Sunday. And, uh, you know, we have to ask them, why would that be your goal? What, what would make you think that you can preach the perfect sermon? And, and help them work through the fact that they can't because they're finite and they're distractions and so on. And, but it's not just for pastors. I mean, um, I happen to know a number of architects and never does everything turn out perfectly in a building. Just never. You, get, you can get pretty close. I happen to know a few recording people also, and they'll talk about, you know, well, that one record, that there were four songs in that one record that were exactly the way I wanted it. Out of Maybe they, you know, cut or been part of hundreds of recordings, and this tiny number captured exactly what they wanted. And then they'll talk about others that came quite close. But uh, we're imperfect creatures because we're finite and because we're sinful both. Well, let me, I, there's a, I have a bunch of additional questions, but... You know, we don't have a, we don't have infinite time, 
So let me ask for kind of short answers to a few questions. Okay, I'll try. I'll do my best. Do your best. Okay, that's <laughs> all I can ask. We've been talking about imperfection. Uh, Wheaton has a grad school. Why is that important? Well, it's important in Wheaton's case because there are advanced programs. For example, Wheaton's Humanitarian Disaster Institute, yes. which we believe were not available in the world or available the way that we had a vision to carry them out that could make a difference in people's lives. And um, that goes beyond the general undergraduate preparation, which is preparing people for all these different callings. But graduate education is more focused, yep. and it sharpens instruments for effective kingdom service. Yeah. Um, changing your corner of the world through concentrated capital, expertise, and effort. And I think... I'm and not just your corner of the world, seeing the place that God has put you as one center for what God is doing in the whole world yep. and sending people out to have that impact. I, I love your humanitarian disaster relief studies. It's That's a perfect example because it's so easy to do it poorly, to scatter your efforts, to uh, not spend money and time, human resources, the, the time people have effectively. Thank you. That's a great answer. Okay, here's another question. Uh, you're a PCA teaching elder. Uh, leading an institution that is not necessarily reformed. It's certainly not antagonistic uh, to reform convictions. There's lots of people who are Presbyterian and reformed, but not everybody is. I mean, you have a lot of other people. Um, how do you negotiate that? Yeah, so I think we need both kinds of institutions. I love being in a Presbyterian church, mm -hmm. which is much more detailed in its theology on all kinds of topics than a broader doctrinal statement like we have at Wheaton College. But I also think we need places where Christians of different theological convictions who are living their Christian faith out differently, liturgically, practically, yep. have an opportunity to interact, learn from one another. Um, um, an analogy I like is to human disease, where highly insulated populations are hugely vulnerable mm -hmm. to uh, disease. So, too, a uh, little more distinctive branches of Christendom are vulnerable to blind spots, theological and practical errors, that if they spent more time uh, living and breathing with other believers from other traditions, they would actually have, uh, they'd be better inoculated against some of those weaknesses. Um, I don't like that answer. I love that answer uh, because it applies not just to schools, but to other parts of life. If you have a leadership team in a business and everybody has a very similar outlook, they can, you can plunge off the cliff because nobody sees this difficulty, this, uh, this lack of resources, whatever it might be, because they all see the situation the same way. Even marriages, if the husband and wife are too similar, uh, they get along well, but they can end up uh, agreeing on a bad path because they don't see a problem. So I love yeah, that and I, I, No, and I would say when you're in a more diverse community, the consensus that you have to reach is harder, harder fought sometimes yes. Much more challenging, requires a lot more grace, and it builds up a lot of good character in the process. <laughs> yes. And if you're able to work it through to that place of consensus, you get better results and better outcomes. Are you ready for lightning round? Yes. Okay. I'll try. <laughs> lightning round is like no answers are allowed to go past 60 seconds, okay? Okay. Uh, name a book or two 
if you must, that changed your life, and it can't be the Bible? Uh, the Trinity Hymnal okay. is the most influential book in my life beyond the Bible. And here's just one of a bajillion. Uh, a book by A.W. Farrar, St. Winifred's, or The Life of School, which is a, um, it's a novel about life at an English boarding school where two close friends are separated by a misunderstanding and the fallout is momentous and painful and the reconciliation is awesome and joyful. I'm so happy that you named a novel because, uh, you know, I mean, Dostoevsky teaches you more about human nature than maybe any theologian ever could. I just finished Jaber Crow by Wendell Berry, yeah, which great is book, yeah. a marvelous book. It takes some patience. Um, okay, what do you do to play or relax? Competitive sports, strategy board games, and anything my kids are doing. Okay, great. Uh, uh, strategy games, does that include chess, or is it more like Stratego? Oh, no, uh, like uh, European board games. Got so it. Settlers of Catan, okay, Power okay. Grid, okay, got it. Uh, El Dorado. Okay, putting aside practical considerations, what job would you like to do for one year? Uh, I would like to be a sportscaster. I would like to have the job of your last interview guest <laughs> or perhaps his father. I'd love to have his father's old job. Uh, or yeah. um, I, I love the work of people who um, do the choices for uh, finance, people that choose the stocks that you should invest in, do a lot of research in companies, really get granular, quantitative and qualitative to make great strategic decisions. That's interesting. Uh, what do people get wrong about your work? Um, what would they be surprised to learn about it? Like, you're kidding me. You do, you do what? You face what? I think people would be surprised to know just the quantity of critical comments that pastors and other leaders have to put up with on a pretty daily basis. The most criticized person in the world at any given time is the president of the United States. Also the most beloved, right? And the higher you go, the more criticism you get, the more, the more praise that's outlandish, but also the more criticism is outlandish. Yeah, that's sad but true. And it, and it can be overwhelming, especially in this time when uh, people are tense about COVID. All right, if people want to learn more about you, they can read your books. There's only one Phil Reichen that's written 50 books, so they can probably find you. And, and uh, Wheaton, it's easy to find more about you and Wheaton College. Just go to Wheaton, just plug it in, and you'll find it. Yeah, or one other thing is, um, you know, I speak regularly in chapel here, so if you just type in Wheaton College Chapel and put in my name, you could get a sense of some of the teaching I do to our students on campus. Outstanding. Outstanding. All right. Do you have one more thing you want to say before we go? Well, okay. Let me end with this point. I actually, you know, we were talking earlier about the imperfections. I think actually in a way, particularly for preachers, it's important that some of those imperfections come through because then it is really clear to people, like whatever is being accomplished through your work, that's, that's not you. You're a limited person as much as anybody else is. That's actually what God is doing through you. So um, I think that helps us, you know, laugh at our imperfections and just accept them as part of our human condition. Um, and I think that helps us be more joyful 
in our work. It helps us handle success better and failure better in our working lives. Well, we do have to accept our imperfection. Uh, when I preach, I almost always mispronounce a word or, you know, say David when I met Jonathan and people come up to me and say, no, that was a great sermon, Pastor, but you said X, you made a mistake at the 11-minute mark. And I said, no, that's the mistake you caught. There were nine others or 17 others, malapropisms, broken sentences, you name it. Yep, your kids are all over them. That's what I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, Phil, um, it's been a delight to have you. I, I admire your work, your skills. I think you've labeled them well. You've worked hard to make the most out of God's gifts. And I think it's marvelous that you took a difficult call and are delighting in it. So I, I want to commend you and encourage our people to maybe uh, listen to you a little bit, Wheaton Chapel, read some of your work. And may God bless you in your very challenging and very strategic calling. Thank you. Yeah, great to talk to you, Dan. Good to visit. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on your preferred podcast platform. You can visit our website, the Center for Faith and Work St. Louis at faithandworkstl.org. There you can subscribe to our podcast, sign up for our newsletter, learn about our Faith and Work cohorts, leave a message for us, and more. Here are the questions for the podcast with Phil Riken. What are the elements of godly ambition? Have you ever felt that God was calling you to go somewhere when you wanted to stay? Or to stay when you wanted to go? Join our discussion at facebook.com slash faithandworkstl or our Instagram at faithandworkstl. I'm Christina Hanna, Program Director for Center for Faith and Work.